Well, I can vividly remember a scene in grade school where, you know, cast your mind back. This is the 80s now, right? So grade school, I had hair. I was little, right? And at recess, you did one thing. You went outside, right? Went to a big public school, so you went outside. And of course, if you're outside with a bunch of boys, what usually happened is you played a sports ball of some kind. Usually it was football or it was wiffle ball or something like that. And there were two captains set up, right? And usually those were the coolest, most popular kids that were the captains right away. And then if you're unfamiliar with what happens next, they pick teams. And this is just in the schoolyard. This is nothing politically correct. This is nothing. This is just raw who do I like and who's good and who's not. And so all of the good kids, the athletic kids, would be picked first. Let's just say that I was picked last. (laughs) And I remember that every time. It would be me and this other nerd who was there, and I was way better than him. And we were just standing there waiting for the eventual humiliation of being picked and put on a team. Somebody groans that they have to have Mike on his team. (laughs) Don't throw the ball to him because he's definitely going to drop it. And today, that's probably completely not allowed. You could never do anything like that. That would be violence and harm to someone's self-esteem or emotional damage, right? You know, it's, it's... What if one day, though, just out of the clear blue sky, for nothing that I did, knowing full well I didn't deserve it, what if one day the captain picked me first? Like, first shot, right off the bat, I want him. Needless to say, I would be shocked, right? But how would that, would be, how would that make me feel? right? Well, the realization, especially knowing deep down inside, I didn't do it. I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve this, but he picked me and I'm on the team. Being chosen infers a value. Someone thinks that you're valuable, that you're desirable. Like when you get accepted into that school or get picked for that team, or she says yes to the date or to marry you. What about being chosen by God to enter his kingdom? How should that reality, the truth of that reality, play into how we live our lives and our maturity as disciples of Jesus Christ? And Jesus is hopefully going to answer those questions today. Again, we are in Matthew chapter 22, making our way through Matthew. A big thank you to Josh for handling a giant chunk of text last week. He was wrong. We were not arguing about the text at all. I know he said that. I, t- I asked him what he wanted to preach on, and he just said, I'll take the whole thing. And I went, okay. So he did. And this week, we see Jesus continuing his discussion with the religious muckety-mucks in Jerusalem, the scribes, the Pharisees, the PhDs of their time. And the PhDs are not at all happy with Jesus right now. His dramatic entrance into the city on the donkey, calling him Messiah, all of this fanfare, little kids calling out his name in the temple, Hosanna, he's teaching with authority, he's evicting people from the temple who are selling things and making a profit off it, and he's just continuing to school the bigwigs on what it means, the kingdom actually means. He says, haven't you read your Bibles, guys? I'm the guy. What's so hard to understand about who I am? Hanging in the background of all of this is the fact that Jesus didn't just come to provide salvation for his people. Jesus came to judge the leaders of Israel. And that's something that sometimes we, we, we blow right by in the ministry of Jesus. 
We think, yeah, sure, he came to seek and save the lost, die on the cross, all that stuff, yes. But he also came to pronounce judgment on the leaders of Israel for their failure. The old covenant is going to be passing away. The new covenant is going to come in him. They will be judged for their complete rejection of him as the Messiah. He's told them that. They know that. They're not happy with him. And yet Jesus boldly continues to proclaim the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ and judgment on them. And things continue to escalate. We'll see that week by week. Things will continue to escalate. To bring it all to a point again, Jesus tells a parable. Now, remember what a parable is. It's a short comparative story that is going to prove a point, okay? Look at, look at 22, 1 through 4 again, just to refresh our memory. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Jesus' point here is to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. He says that point blank. Again, this is another parable about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. All the same thing. Pharisees, scribes, their error is thinking that the kingdom of God is about them. And Jesus is continuing to tell them it's not. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus says that there's a king in his kingdom and he gives a wedding feast for his son. And some cultural context to unpack here. A wedding feast, unlike our modern day four-hour wedding reception, goes on for days. Also, it was a huge social faux pas to not attend a wedding feast that you were invited to. It was a worse social faux pas to not attend a wedding feast given by the king, especially for his son. And so, like our kind of modern save-the-date kind of things, right? We get those things, we put them up on the refrigerator. I don't know about you guys, but we still have like 15 save-the-dates of weddings that have already happened just standing on our refrigerator, right? We get the save-the-dates, we put them there, we know it, we put it in our calendars, Right? They did the same thing, except they didn't have save-the-date cards and refrigerators. They told people all about it, and then when it was time for the wedding, they would send people, they would send messengers and say, remember that? It's time. Let's go. Everything's ready. So the king sends his messengers, his servants, and they say, everything is set. Round everybody up. Only one problem. The people blow them off. They refuse the invitation. They ignored, they disregarded the invitation. So the king sends more messengers to tell them again, look, everything is ready. Dinner's cooked, tables are set, the band is playing their introduction music, like it's time, let's go. We see that they disregard and they reject the king's invitation. But the call still goes out, still goes out. It says, come, come to the kingdom, come to the wedding feast. Church, this is the general call of God to come to his kingdom. It goes out continuously. It goes out repeatedly. It goes out from the time that Jesus resurrected from the dead and the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. It's a call of salvation through the Son of the King, through Jesus Christ. And here's the point. The general call of salvation goes out to all. The general call goes out to all. 
The general call of the kingdom of God has gone out continuously since the creation of the world. And what is the primary way in which that call goes out? Us. Right here. Right now. The church. Every week, qualified men are supposed to stand in pulpits like this one and proclaim the truth of the gospel. That's what's supposed to happen. The call that there's a king that he's invited us to the wedding feast but it's bigger than that, right? Every time the gospel is shared with friends, every time that a text message goes out with a Bible verse to an unbelieving friend, every time a gospel podcast is published and listened to, every time that we publish a verse or gospel truth to social media, the general call goes out. It says there's a kingdom. There's a God. Come to the kingdom. And Jesus proclaims this general call in Mark 1.15. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the call. Repent and believe the gospel. Come to the kingdom. The general call should go out from all of our lives as we live out a biblical worldview under the authority of the true king. It should be the heartbeat of our church. It should be the lyrics of the songs we sing, the books that we read, the kids' curriculum that's being taught right now in Kingdom Kids. The general call never changes. It goes out and says the same thing all day, every day, until Christ returns. And then that call will cease. It says there's a king, and you are welcome in the kingdom. Come, enter the kingdom. The time is now. However, the general call says also that you and the king are not in a good place. It says that you and the king have an unreconciled relationship. The call says that there's a greater spiritual reality at work here that most people just completely disregard, just like the wedding guests. The truth of the call also says that even before we get a chance to reject that call, it's already been rejected. It was rejected by our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And by nature and choice, every single human being has then lived out that rejection of the kingdom and reminder that us, that we and the king are not okay, but yet he still calls us. He says the time is now, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel call goes out to everyone in earshot. No bias, no restriction to every corner of the earth. Our gracious king calls us to the kingdom. But what if we reject him? Look at verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent in his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Well, that escalated quickly. I mean, we're just talking about a wedding here. Like, what is happening? People respond in two ways. They, they blow it off. They disregard it. They could care less, right? And then you have this other group who woke up and chose violence that day, right? And they, they, they took their, the servants, and they beat them, and they killed them. How does the king react to this? Not so good. Not a good plan to kill the messengers of the king, Because the king just then sends in the army. And the army then kills those who killed his messengers. And then they burn the city to the ground. 
Now remember, this is a parable, right? So we're thinking like, oh my gosh, did this really happen? And what a lunatic. No, it's not saying this really happened. But for a first century Jew in a Greco-Roman context, they get that. They understand that. We don't. We don't have kings. We don't have people that are going to come in and kill other people and burn our city to the ground, right? That's not going to happen necessarily, right? We don't have that, that unilateral authority of the king. So for us, it's a context it's a cultural kind of context thing. But if you are a Jew in first century Greco-Roman culture, this is not a stretch because you're surrounded by kings and you're surrounded by armies and this sort of thing actually happens. So this is, this is reality for them. Everyone was well aware of what would happen to you if you rejected the power of the king. Because this isn't just a rejection of, I don't really want to come to your dumb party. This is a rejection of the king's authority. If you dared to disrespect a king and worse, murdered his servants, you better believe he would be mad and you better believe he's going to get justice. Talk about kicking the hornet's nest here. What did they think was going to happen? It's the king and it's a wedding feast for his son. This is not just people blowing off an invitation to a party. This is a complete rejection of the king's authority and his throne. Including this part, the parable speaks very prophetically about the Jewish leaders and their coming judgment, right? This is what's, again, hanging in the background here. Because they have rejected Jesus, right? They have then rejected God's authority over them. They have rejected who God said they were supposed to be in Israel as God's nation. And they've rejected him and they've substituted their own power for it. And you don't think he's mad about that? You don't think he's going to judge them about that? We know through history, actual history, 70 AD, the Roman army is going to come into Jerusalem. They're going to have enough. They're going to kick in the gates of the city. They're going to kill millions of people, and they're going to burn it to the ground. That's what's hanging in the background here. Jesus says, no, 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 you continue to reject me. This will happen to you for real. And we know through history it actually did. Likewise, for us, church, if we reject the general call If we spurn God's gracious offer to come to the kingdom, we will face consequences as well. Because if we reject the general call, we reject God's saying, come to the kingdom, we're not just saying, no, I'd rather not. We're rejecting God himself, and we're rejecting God's rightful authority over us. So I'll put it this way, rejecting the kingdom comes with consequences. Rejecting the kingdom comes with consequences. This is a prophetic parable, again, in the sense that what it, it, this is exactly what's going to happen to the Jewish leaders. Remember, context, context, context. He's talking to the Jewish leaders, so it's going to happen to them, but it's also to us. We, we forget that the gospel is not a suggestion. The gospel is a command. Those words that we just read in Mark 1.15, that's not, it's not, there's not a question mark after it where Jesus says it. It's not a desperate Jesus saying, oh, please accept me. It's a command. It says, repent and believe. If you do not obey the command of the king, there is consequences. Spurgeon put it this way. If we refuse to come in obedience to his command, we commit an overt act of rebellion against his divine majesty. We have to overlay a major part of redemptive history, right? Again, as far as the human race, we've already rejected him. 
We've already rejected the invitation. Our first parents, as our global representative, rejected God's kingdom, his command. They disobeyed him. In so doing, they incurred the wrath of God, justifiably so. See, a fundamental misunderstanding of the non-biblical worldview is that how could a good God send people to hell? It's just kind of, the premise itself is wrong. I mean, what a sad little God. Maybe he's got a self-esteem problem. He's just going to send people to an eternal hell because they don't accept him? I'm so sorry, he needs to be accepted. It's a completely wrong position. The truth is this, a gracious God offers salvation to those who have already rejected him. That's a huge difference. It's not that he's sending people to hell because they reject him. He's a gracious God that offers salvation to people who have already rejected him. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. There's a separation there. We're unreconciled. So the truth is this. How come it seems the overwhelming majority of the people in this world live their lives like those people who were invited to the banquet for the first time and could care less? There's people who live their lives every day. Maybe that's you, and if you're here, thank you for coming. Hopefully your mom made you come. Thank you for coming, right? But sometimes we live our lives blissfully unaware of this spiritual reality that we are under the wrath of the king for rejecting him. Because why? We're distracted with everything else. We're distracted with our jobs and our kids and our families and our cars and our money and the world and our whatever. All the while, there's this spiritual reality hanging over everybody's heads, that we've rejected the king, and there needs to be reconciliation. And again, make no mistake to not accept the invitation. It's not like I've, I've, I've said no, I just, I just really haven't thought about it. You're still rejecting. Just like, that's why they worded the parable this way. They disregarded it. They just went about their business. They just did their thing. The king will not be dishonored. Judgment will come. And again, isn't this a little severe? And I have to say, no, it's actually justified. God is justified in his wrath against us and the judgment of those who reject his gracious offer of salvation because actually in so doing, they're again rejecting God himself. First John talks about this in a very, very familiar passage in First John chapter 1. I'll just pick it up at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love that verse, right? If we say we have not sinned, watch this, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Did you guys catch that last, that last verse in verse 10? If we say we have not sinned, this is what that means. If we say that's just not the way it is, I, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe I'm a sinner. I don't believe I'm that bad of a person. I tried to do my own thing. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. He's a real jerk. I'm no Hitler. I haven't done anything to kill anybody. Right? And as a matter of fact, like God sending his son to die on the cross, that's like divine child abuse. Like all that, I just... But it did happen. Jesus really did come. Jesus really did die. And so now you are saying, guess what, God? You're a liar. You didn't even need to do that because the problem doesn't even exist. There is no sin. There is no unreconciliation between me and you. I'm not even sure if you exist. 
said, you're, you're calling God a liar and the truth doesn't even, you, you don't even know the truth. If we dis- disagree that we are sinful, if we disagree that we need a savior, then God's the liar because he provided one. God obviously sent Jesus at great personal cost to save us and we say we don't need saving. Saying the gospel is a lie. And we're calling the king a liar. And we spit in his face and we dishonor him. It's saying, not only do I not want to come into the kingdom, there is no kingdom. Think of the other side of the equation now, though. What if we accept the king's gracious offer? How then shall we live? Especially in light of the reality that we did nothing to deserve the invitation itself. It's all the grace of the king. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go therefore into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Jesus continues with the parable. After the initial people who rejected the king's gracious invitation, he tells his servants, they're not worthy. Here's what you do. Go out to the intersections. Go out to the main roads. Go out to the mall. Go out to wherever. Get everybody and bring them in here. They're not worthy, but I want everybody in here to this banquet. He says, the wedding feast is still going to go on. The kingdom still exists. The wedding feast is still going to go on, no matter who's coming. My plan is not going to be thwarted. Here's what I need you to do. Go do it. And the servants go and they do it. They, do the, they, they invite the whole world, rich and poor of all ethnicities, the fine upstanding citizens and the criminals, the Democrats and the Republicans, the Mac people and the Windows people, all of them, they all come to the banquet. Except the Windows people had problems finding the door, but that's okay. <clears throat> Where did... <laughs> Where that works better than I thought it did. What what did the people do to deserve that invitation? Nothing. They were just existing. They're just standing there, taking up space. Standing on the street corner. Maybe they're homeless, maybe they have no place to go. And a king's representative says, Hey, you want to come to a wedding feast at the king's castle? Um, let me think, uh, go to a wedding feast, probably a week, eat the best food, drink the best wine. Yes. Yes, I do. I would like to come right now. Can I come now? Of course they said yes. How sweet is that? It's like somebody coming up to you and say, here, here's a vacation. Do you want it? Yes. Will you go talk to my boss? Never mind. I quit. You're going, you're going immediately. Remember the background here, the the coming judgment of the Jewish leaders, the Old Testament, the law, the temple, the sacrifices, all given to what? Them first. They had everything. They had the, the covenant. They had the temple. They had the nation. They had the land. They had everything, and they essentially rejected Jesus. Well, they definitely rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and he says it's now open to everybody. It's tempting to think that this is a plan B, right? That, that Israel failed. Oh, well, we'll open it up to the whole world. And, and we've got to remember, that's not the way it is. 
that the Bible has from Genesis 12 said that the gospel will bless all nations. He told Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed for you. So it was never just meant to stay with Israel. Israel was supposed to be the conduit for the whole world, except it stopped with Israel because they rejected Jesus the Messiah. And he said, my banquet is still going to go on. My wedding feast is still going to happen. Whether or not you bring it to the whole world, obviously not because you, don't re- you, you reject Jesus the Messiah. I'm just going around you. I'm bringing it to the whole world myself. That's what the parable means. They're going to go to invite everybody. God says, you reject my son. I reject you. But my plan of salvation will not be thwarted. I will still bring salvation to the whole world. I still will invite everybody to come to my kingdom. He goes to every corner of the globe, every tribe and tongue and nation, every single human being saying, come into the kingdom, be saved, be safe, be sheltered from my wrath. Don't miss that idea of the kingdom, right, with the walls and the security and the army and be saved from my own wrath. Here's what's really, really important, though. While there are no restrictions on who is invited to the kingdom. There's one giant restriction on how anyone accesses the kingdom. We've got to remember that. There's no restrictions on who is invited. We see that. But there's one huge restriction on how you enter the kingdom. Look at verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said the attendants, to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Again, struggle with a little bit of context here. It seems like an escalation, like the guy's just dressed inappropriately for the wedding, and now you're going to tie him up and throw him out, right? The king makes his grand entrance, as was traditional, right? The, the, the people would have their uh, drinks, and they'd get ready, and they'd sit at their tables, and they'd be ready, and then the host of the wedding banquet would come in and would greet all of his guests, and of course, they would honor the host for throwing this giant party, right? So he's, he's looking at all these guests, and, and he's happy because everything is now full with the people that rejected the banquet at first, the invitation to the banquet. Now the room's full. And the king is happy, except for this one guy. He, he looks at this one guy, and he's not dressed for the wedding, right? We, we, had a, we had a wedding here yesterday, right? Full house, and then we went to the reception. It was a beautiful day. People were dressed up. <clears throat> you dress up for a wedding. We always have that one uncle that, like, doesn't get the memo. Like, we always have that, but by and large... People dress up. You, you don't wear what you wear on a Monday morning, right, to go to a wedding. You dress differently. And, and unpacking this culturally, why this is important, and I want to be transparent because some commentators interpret this in different ways, but I'm very partial to one way that I think makes the most biblical sense to me. And I know there's one or two other ways that we can look at this, but it seems to line up best with the gospel, which to me is the point of the Bible. So... It's entirely possible then that king, the king is literally inviting people off the street, right? 
they're not dressed for a wedding. He just said, hey, come on, get in the van. Let's go to the king's house. They're not dressed for a wedding. Maybe they don't even have wedding clothes. Maybe they're, maybe they're homeless. It's entirely possible, and I think likely, that then the king provides them with wedding clothes. You don't have the right clothes? I don't care. You didn't deserve this anyway. Come on, I got everything you need. I'm going to give you the right clothes. I'm going to give you the suit. I'm going to give you the dress. I'm going to give you whatever. I think I'm on pretty solid ground with two of my friends agree with me, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. And MacArthur puts it this way, ancient kings often provided the proper attire to guests at their feast, and the second group of invitees has a need of appropriate clothing, for they are found on the street unprepared to attend a wedding banquet. Therefore, the ejected man's lack of a proper garment indicates that he was purposely rejecting the king's own gracious provision. So, so get this. The guy's invited to the banquet. He gets in the van with everything else. And then, then they, they say, well, here, here's, your, here's your wedding clothes. Because let's face it, dude, you're a mess. You know, you want to go to a wedding. Here's your wedding clothes. And he says, eh, I'm okay the way that I am. No, no, no. You, you, need, you need to wear this. To get in, like, you need to wear this. No, I'm good the way that I am. I just, which way's the bar? Because I just want to get going with everything. I, I don't need your requirements. I just want your benefits. So he gets in. The king sees him. He says, no, I want to do it my way. I think I'm dressed fine just the way that I am. See where this is going? I don't need your rules, God. I don't need your exclusivity. I'm making up my own, my own path to God. I got it just fine. I just want the food and the wine. I don't need you to tell me how to live. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I just want to sit at your table. I want to dress the way I want to dress. I want to live my wife, life the way I want to live my life. Church, what can this be except for the gracious way that our king not only invites us to the banquet but clothes us with the very righteousness that we need to be there. He provides the means of entering the kingdom. He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yet some still reject the very clothing that he provides. My friend R.C. continues, some apparently accept the Father's gracious invitation to come into his kingdom without acknowledging their need of the clothing that only he can provide. The perfect righteousness of Christ without this clothing. The bad guests cannot remain and will be cast out on judgment day. Again, language here that a, a first century Jew would recognize to the place of outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth that just doesn't mean he's going to be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem. That says something much different to someone listening in the first century. That's Gehenna. That's hell. That's Sheol. That's the place of the dead. They knew that. It's much deeper than that. And so we tie this together with the gospel and we say entrance into the kingdom is only through Christ. Entrance into the kingdom is only through Christ. The kingdom of God, if you will, has a dress code. Not the old-time church dress code, right, where you can't wear jeans to church, right? I'm talking about dress code metaphorically, right? It's to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not our sin, 
Only Christ can provide it for, it and we, for us, and we obtain it only through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ, we are literally provided the clothing that we need to be at the wedding feast. How? Our clothes are dirty. We don't have the right clothes. We can't buy the right clothes. We can't even clean our clothes to the level that they would need to be in order to enter the kingdom, in order to be at the wedding feast. There's no way for us to provide the level of righteousness that we need to be accepted by God. So he provides it for us. There's no way we have good enough deeds to get into the kingdom. Another verse tells us all of our deeds are like filthy rags. Put that together with clothing. God provides the very clothing that we need. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were not afraid, but yet then they sinned. And then after that, what did they try to do? Cover themselves up. They tried to clothe themselves. Didn't work. Never a good plan. Don't hide from God. But then what does God do? He clothes them. He clothes them with animal skins. Think back to the priests of the Old Covenant. Can they just walk into the temple and perform their sacrifices and do whatever they're supposed to do, dressed any old way they want to? No. Very, very specific. You ever want to have a good time? Read through Levitic, uh, Lexodus, Exodus, and Leviticus. Or both, if you want to call it that. You'll see very, very specific requirements of what the priests have to wear in order to do what they're supposed to do. They just can't walk into the presence of God dressed like a foreshadowing people. The Bible tells one story. We just can't walk into the presence of God dressed in our sin. We need to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we can't do that ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. God has to make us righteous, and he does so only through faith in Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. Look, picking up his thought in verse 9. <clears throat> And being found in him, watch this, here we are, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Therefore, by any means possible, I might obtain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says it point blank. I can't have a righteousness of my own. It's got to come through Christ, and that's through faith. Look again at Matthew 22, that last verse. This is, for, this is Jesus talking. He's done with the storytelling. Close quote. Now this is Jesus saying this is what this means. For, because, purpose clause. For, many are called, but few are chosen. Huge words. Jesus is done with the parable. He's done telling the story. Now he's saying this is what this whole thing means. Many are called, but few are chosen. The invitations have gone out, but not everyone will be let in. Why? Because they, they lack the proper clothing. They lack the righteousness. Because it's God's kingdom, and God knows who his people are. And those, are, those who are his people will accept the invitation and be dressed the way they're supposed to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Those who are in the kingdom of God are, are chosen by God to be there. They accept the invitation through faith in Jesus Christ. So I'll say it this way. 
kingdom people are a chosen people. <clears throat> kingdom people are a chosen people. Once again, this is all under the banner of God's sovereignty. It's God's kingdom. It's God's wedding feast. Revelation tells us the story of one day where we will be with Jesus forever in the perfect marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be with him forever. But now, the general call goes out to everyone. It says there's a king. He has a kingdom. Come and enter the kingdom. Repent and believe. Come to the kingdom. That call goes out through every church, hopefully through the word of God, through podcasts, through YouTube, through missionaries to every corner of the globe. And it says, come to the banquet. Come to the wedding feast. Come to the kingdom. But now this warning goes out. The call goes out with a warning saying, there's a spiritual reality at work, people, that not many of you are paying attention to because you're all consumed with your lives. You're all consumed with soccer games and bank balances and work-to-do items and schoolwork and getting married and whatever else, and some of those things are good things, but whoa, whoa, pay attention. There's a spiritual reality here. Don't let that get lost. And in so doing, we disregard and reject the invitation to come to the kingdom. And rejecting the kingdom of God comes with consequences. The general call goes out in a very specific way. The general call is not all beliefs lead to God. The general call is not all roads lead to heaven. The general call is, I think I'm good enough to be led into heaven. The general call is not, yeah, if God exists, I'll take my chances later on. The general call goes out in a very, very specific way. It's not, I'm living my life as a spiritual person. I'm not really religious. Entering the kingdom is only through a very, very specific way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a realization that we are all inappropriately dressed for the wedding, for the kingdom, that we can't clean our clothes enough, that we can't buy the right clothes. It, we must be given the right clothes. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that's the gracious gift of God, our King. He chose us to be in His kingdom and those he chooses will not blow off the invitation. Those who are his will respond to the invitation. Those that are his will say, yes, give me the wedding garment. Please cover my sin, cover my filth, cover my rejection of you. And think about it. If you're chosen for something, right, doesn't that make you feel valued and special and dearly loved? In a healthy way, we means that it doesn't go to our head, Right? Now, multiply that towards a billion. They were chosen for the kingdom of God. We're chosen by the king to be in his kingdom, and we, like those people standing on the street corner, have nothing. We have, we have nothing, and we don't deserve it at all. And we're not wearing even close to what we're supposed to be wearing, but yet the call of the king goes out and says, enter my kingdom, and I'll give you everything you need to be in my kingdom through faith in my son. He has done the work on the cross. He's resurrected from the dead. You believe in him, I will take your sin. I will take your dirty clothes. And through faith, I will give you the clean clothes of perfect righteousness. Come to the banquet, he says. Church, this has to impact every corner of our lives. Our, our identity, our worldview. If you want to get... Uh, humanity uh, 
uh, perspective for a moment, right? Our, our, our self-esteem, right? Our mood. It has to impact every aspect of ourselves. The great C.S. Lewis sums it up, who I quoted this week at midweek, every Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m., shameless plug. He says this, like, like an accepted lover, he feels that he's done nothing and could have never done anything or could ever have done anything to deserve such astonishing happiness. His own puny and ridiculous efforts would be as helpless to retain the joy as they would have been to achieve it in the first place. Relief and buoyancy are the characteristic notes. Are we characterized by relief and that buoyancy, that lightness of heart? That the king loves me. The king called me to himself. The king gave me what I need to be in the kingdom. Should that not impact every aspect of your lives? It has to. Is your life characterized by relief and buoyancy? a lightness and a thankfulness. Kingdom people are a chosen people. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. What a powerful parable. A parable of the way that you run your kingdom, the way that you won't let sinful people interfere with your global plan of redemption, that although Israel failed, that that doesn't thwart your global plan of redemption that the kingdom is open to every single person from every single nation, Lord, but you know who are yours. You call those and they respond. And Lord, I pray that through this pulpit, through our church, through the ministries, the kingdom kids, through as we, as we scatter now to our individual families and lives and jobs and neighborhoods, that that kingdom call would go out again and that people would respond. And I pray that for us that are already in the kingdom, that have experienced the love and the acceptance of the king, that our, our lives would be characterized by relief and buoyancy and thankfulness and gratitude, the realization of such undeserved grace, that the gracious king not only invites us to his kingdom, but provides everything we need to be in it. Father, help us to internalize this, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.